Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome to the Nature Podcast. Coming up in the show, we take a look at a new development in the gene editing of human embryos. We'll also meet the physicists who are studying matter's evil twin, antimatter. Plus, we're having a look at the first flower. This is the Nature Podcast for August the 3rd, 2017. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. There's been some reporting over the last week about the first US-based experiments to edit genomes of viable human embryos. Very few details were known other than the fact that it had been done. Yes, so this is actually a Nature paper that has now just been published and that I've been looking into this week. But it's interesting to look at what the early coverage has focused on. An MIT Technology Review reporter wrote... Although none of the embryos were allowed to develop for more than a few days, and there was never any intention of implanting them into a womb, the experiments are a milestone on what may prove to be an inevitable journey towards the birth of the first genetically modified humans. And that's why there has been all this excitement and controversy over this paper. One possible outcome of genome-editing human embryos is this idea of designer babies – that parents would be able to select particular features in their offspring or artificially alter their intelligence or attractiveness. Now, this paper is actually a long way off from those kinds of complex alterations. In fact, what it shows is a very simple change. The aim was to fix a potentially fatal mutation that causes a disease called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. When I spoke to the lead author, Shukrat Metalipov, he was keen to emphasise the importance of this kind of research for treating inherited diseases like this one. So the um, idea was that there are um, heritable gene mutations in, in humans that cause a variety of uh, disease. And we've been trying to, to understand if the, today's technology can allow us to actually correct these mutations in, in early uh, human embryos. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a heart condition that often goes undetected but can lead to sudden death in otherwise healthy adults. Most people with the condition will have one disease-causing version of the gene and one healthy version, meaning they have a 50% chance of passing it on to their children. One way to avoid this is to use IVF and test the embryos before implanting them in the womb, only implanting those embryos without the mutation. 
Shukrat's team, however, were interested in whether they could fix the mutant gene in the embryos themselves. To do this, they made use of a popular gene editing tool. So the, the powerful technology that we have so far is, is so-called so this genetic scissors, CRISPR, which is, um, allows you to go into very specific sequence in a genome and make a cut uh, in a very specific space. So the CRISPR doesn't really correct, but it makes cut. So it's kind of makes damage. Although gene editing tools can be used to knock out certain genes, or even insert new ones, the aim here was to allow the cell to repair the cut gene itself. Almost all cells will try to automatically repair broken DNA. But the way embryos do this is slightly different. Cells, most cells that we know, when they repair, they would make a mistake. But the human embryos, they actually look for blueprint that would tell them the program how to rebuild this broken piece. The blueprint that the embryos found was already in the cell. The embryos all had one mutant copy of the gene and one normal healthy copy. So when the mutated version got cut by CRISPR, the healthy copy was used as a template. This was an unexpected finding and could mean that CRISPR can be used to treat other diseases caused by a mutation in a single version of a gene. The team also addressed a well-known problem in gene editing called mosaicism. This is when the edited embryo ends up with a mosaic of different cells, some of which have been fixed and some of which haven't. Making the edit at the single cell stage, just after the sperm fertilises the egg, should prevent this because every adult cell is descended from this first edited cell. But in many experiments, gene editing at this stage has still led to a mosaic effect. Shukrat thinks he knows why. What we found is that even though we, we're targeting a single cell level, the DNA already replicated inside. So the cell hasn't divided yet, but it, the DNA is already divided. The team showed that by using CRISPR at an earlier stage, targeting the gene in the sperm before fertilisation, they could prevent this problematic mosaic effect and ensure every cell in the growing embryo has the corrected gene. These findings could help make this kind of treatment safer and more effective for eventual use on patients. But some people question whether this kind of research should be done at all. Controversies, unfortunately, always surround it does. But uh, I try to explain that, you know, uh, this is for sake of, uh, you know, saving children from horrible diseases. Um, and heritable conditions, uh, are, you know, uh, needs to be treated. And unfortunately, this is genetic diseases, they have to be treated by genetic approaches. That was Shukrat Metalopov of the Oregon Health and Science University in the US. There's been a lot of buzz about this paper at the Nature offices and beyond. Our reporter Heidi Ledford has written a news story on the piece and she joins us in the studio now. Heidi, now that journalists have actually been able to read the paper, do you think the coverage will have a different tone? Well, it might. Some of the coverage initially was a bit scattershot, I guess you could say. There were some interesting claims made about how this was the first time that, you know, genes had been edited in viable human embryos, which is not the case. There's a group in China that had reported that earlier this year. So if this has been done before, we have done gene editing on, on human embryos before, why is this a particular splash, this story? Well, what people are telling me is that there have been a number of improvements in the technique made in this paper. So, you know, there are a lot of safety concerns about trying to edit human embryos 
embryos in the clinic. Just about anybody you talk to says it's nowhere near ready for that yet. Um, And some of those safety concerns, though, are addressed in this paper, not necessarily fully, but they've taken steps to sort of address some of them. And so one of the key um, issues that people are focusing on is this is germline editing. So the germline cells in the embryo are going to turn into the, the sperm and eggs that make the children. So any, any edits you do to the germline are going to get passed on and on down through the generations. That's right. And, and why is that much so much more controversial than... Oh, gosh, it's much more frightening, isn't it? If you make a mistake, oh, there go the kids, you know, and their kids' kids and everything. It's, it's a much more difficult situation ethically to sort of wrestle with. When you talk about editing an embryo and making a change that can be passed down to future generations, you have to be very, very serious that you have to edit that embryo. You know, I mean, with um, other kinds of gene therapies that are performed in adults or even children, um, you know, you're not going to have that change passed down to the next generation. And so there's a different benefit risk kind of analysis going on that needs to be reserved for situations where there's just no other possibility as this kind of a last resort treatment. And people think it's a slippery slope. Now that we're doing it for this terrible heart condition, therefore designer babies round the corner. I think there's some technical hurdles to that as well. I mean, it's one thing to try to use gene editing to treat a condition that's linked to a single mutation in a single gene. A designer baby, that's a very complex... I mean, And I'm using designer baby as kind of code for, you know, oh, I want this color hair and this color eyes, and I want them to be this smart and this athletic, that kind of thing. And we, don't, we have no idea how to engineer that yet. Uh, it's something to discuss. You know, I'm not trying to put it off as, as something that we shouldn't be talking about or worried about. It's absolutely something to discuss, something to think ahead to. But it's really thinking a long way down the line, I think. So what about the scientific community's response to this paper? Is it is it as dramatic as it sounds even to a knowledgeable scientist? It's a bit more nuanced, I'd say. I mean, it's, you know, but they're, the people that I've spoken to so far are, are, you know, pleased to see it, I guess, you know, and to say, oh, OK, so they've made these improvements in, um, you know, the, the sort of off-target genetic changes that people were very worried about making. This paper uh, doesn't see any evidence for those. Doesn't mean they aren't there, but it's at least they're, if they're there, they're likely there at a low rate. So that's when um, you make accidental mutations. Exactly, yeah. Um, so some of these safety concerns that that people had had, you know, this this paper sort of takes a, a step towards addressing some of those. Um, but again, you know, the the agreement across the board is that this is nowhere near ready for prime time to engineer even a genetic disease, uh, much less a designer baby. Thanks to Heidi Ledford there for coming and telling us about that. Her report is up on nature.com forward slash news. I also spoke to Shukrat Metalipov and you can find his paper and the news and views at nature.com forward slash nature. Stay tuned for slug-inspired sealant and evaporating snowball planets. Those are in the research highlights. But now, Adam is finding out about the physicists researching matter's mirror image. At the heart of physics are particles. From electrons to the Higgs boson, these are the building blocks of the universe we know and love. And every particle of matter has an antiparticle the physics version of an evil twin. If an electron meets its evil twin, a positron, the pair annihilates in a flash. And this raises one very important question. So this is a huge mystery. I I like to refer to it as as question zero. Is why did the universe survive? And why is it made of matter instead of antimatter? This is Jeffrey Hangst, who's at Aarhus University in Denmark. 
Jeffrey's question zero is one of the big mysteries of modern physics. Antimatter particles seem like perfect mirror images of their matter twins. For example, an antiproton has the same mass and equal and opposite charge to a proton. But if they're so similar, why didn't the Big Bang create equal numbers of both? Whatever their explanation, we should count ourselves lucky that it didn't. If there had been equal amounts of matter and antimatter, it all would have annihilated, leaving nothing to make up galaxies, stars and humans. So the search is on to explain this matter-antimatter difference. Physicists are mostly looking for new particles that might help update their best theories. But Jeffrey is doing something different. He's measuring antimatter itself as accurately as possible. This is no easy task. Antimatter doesn't occur naturally, which is kind of inconvenient. We need a, a high-energy accelerator to produce the antimatter. And once you have it, you have to keep it away from all other matter because it will annihilate if it comes into contact with normal matter. When my colleagues talk about doing measurements with matter or how difficult their experiments are, I, I just kind of roll my eyes. I say, you, you want difficult, you try antimatter. <laughs> Despite the difficulties, physicists are getting better and better at handling antimatter. The researchers can now combine an antiproton with a positron, which is an anti-electron. Together, this forms the most simple possible anti-atom, anti-hydrogen. Here's Michael Dozer, who leads another team working on antimatter. A few years ago, no atoms had been trapped at all, and they're still trapping a handful of atoms. So that's a huge step forward, but at the same time, you'd like to have thousands or even millions of atoms at your disposal. The researchers are now probing all sorts of details of these anti-hydrogen atoms. For example, they're looking into the wavelengths of light that are absorbed by the atoms. This reveals anti-hydrogen's internal structure. And soon they're hoping to watch how the atoms are drawn towards Earth by gravity. All these delicate measurements are done on the off chance that there's something anything unexpected about antimatter. Some minute difference between antihydrogen and hydrogen. A difference like this could finally explain why our universe began with more matter than antimatter. So far, nothing. When I spoke to Michael, I asked him, and personally, do you actually expect to find any surprises? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, the alternative is to really look where other people have looked, and I don't find that to be particularly interesting. One thing is for sure. Even with no indication that they'll ever find deviations in antimatter, both Michael and Jeffrey do find working with antimatter deeply rewarding. The challenges on the way, the, the difficulties in solving those difficulties, are satisfaction enough for me. Of course, the, the bad news is that if you find a difference, you win the Nobel Prize. If you find no difference, you don't. And uh, the work is just as hard either way. Only the most exotic theories predict there should be any new differences between matter and antimatter. So at this point, the Nobel is still looking pretty unlikely. And according to Michael, other physicists aren't quite sure what to make of this antimatter research. 
Partly, I think they're, they're, they think we're wasting our time. Partly, I think they're amazed by the complexity of what we're trying to do. Um, and I, I hope they're impressed because these are things that take many years to be able to get to some point of actually measuring something useful. The researcher's ability to create, trap and measure antimatter has come on leaps and bounds in recent years. And while no one can predict what they'll find, Jeffrey is looking forward to learning more and more about antimatter. And so now it's, it's kind of a new era for us because we can plan ambitious experiments. Uh, and so it, to me, it's just like we just reached the crest of a hill and, and we're looking down into a valley of opportunity. And it's a, a fascinating time to be able to, to work on this. That was Jeffrey Hankst and Michael Dozer. They lead two antimatter experiments at CERN in Geneva called Alpha and Aegis, respectively. To find out more about cutting-edge antimatter research, check out the feature in this week's issue. Stay tuned for the news. We're talking exomoons and p-value pet peeves. But now, here's Charlotte Stoddart with the research highlights. Are you fed up with blister plasters falling off in the swimming pool? Well, look no further than the nearest vegetable patch. Slug slime has inspired an adhesive that stays sticky when wet. The pest that gardeners love to hate secretes a gluey goo that secures them to concrete and cabbage leaves, whatever the weather. Scientists investigated how the mucus works and designed a gooey glue of their own. A sticky layer based on chitosan, a common polymer, latches onto the target surface, while a backing layer made of hydrogel strengthens the bond by absorbing and dispersing stress. The slime-inspired sealant was put to the test on a pig heart with holes and a leaky rat liver, and it successfully stemmed the flow of blood. This ode to ooze was published in Science. Hundreds of millions of years ago, the Earth was entirely locked in ice. Then, thanks to carbon-rich gases released by volcanoes, the Earth warmed, enough to escape its icy bonds and welcome life on board. But other snowball planets might not have such a fruitful future. Planets without Earth's gloriously gaseous conditions are predicted to warm gradually as their stars become brighter. A team modelled this climate evolution on snowball planets with no active carbon cycle and a lack of greenhouse gases. They found that the star power needed to thaw these icy spheres is so tremendous that the planet would overshoot the Goldilocks just right stage and all the water would boil away. Read up on this cool hot topic in Nature Geoscience. I don't know about you, but I love receiving a bunch of reproductive structures on Valentine's Day. I am, of course, talking about flowers, the reproductive structures of most plants. The flower evolved between 140 and 250 million years ago. But what did it look like way back then? In a Nature Communications paper this week, a team of scientists have reconstructed the last common ancestor of all living flowering plants. Reporter Anand Jagatia spoke to lead author Hervé Soke from the Paris Sud University and started by asking him how they managed to reproduce this first flower. 
So unfortunately, uh, there's no direct fossil evidence for uh, these times. There's, uh, there, there's a few fossil pollen grains, uh, which are uh, probably attributed to the flowering plants, but currently there's no fossil flower that is as old as the, the group itself. So this sets a limit on what we can do with the fossil record for this particular uh, question. So if there are no fossils from that far back, how can you go about trying to work out what this early ancestral flower might have looked like? So what we did is we used a, a very uh, general and standard uh, approach, which is called ancestral state reconstruction. And how it works, it's, uh, it's quite simple. We, we use the evolutionary tree that connects uh, all of the living species together. And we use this tree together with the distribution of uh, particular characters about the floral structure as we know it in uh, all of the living uh, species of flowering plants. Right, okay, so you're kind of tracing the traits of modern plants back through the evolutionary tree. So what kind of traits are we talking about here? So we're actually talking about the number of parts uh, in each of the the series of the flowers. Uh, We're talking about the uh, physical arrangement of these parts. We're talking about uh, the symmetry of the flowers. And using the tree and the data, the tips, uh, we can go back in time and make an inference on what happened at different uh, points. Uh, a different ancestors of living species. So what did you find when you did this analysis? To some extent, uh, things we would have uh, predicted, such as the ancestral symmetry of the flower being uh, um, radial, uh, but also a number of uh, uh, surprises. The flowers uh, were bisexual, uh, containing both female and male parts in the same place, rather than in uh, two separate structures. Uh, this was completely new. We, we couldn't predict it before we ran this analysis. Uh, and, and in particular, the big surprise was the fact that the ancestral flowers uh, apparently uh, were uh, organized in whorls. As I understand it, the whorls are when the structures of a flower are arranged in concentric circles, but the structures can also be arranged uh, as a spiral. Could you give some examples so that people can picture in their heads what they might look like? So an example of a flower uh, that has a whorl would be, uh, for instance, a lily uh, flower. Uh, an example of a flower that has uh, spirals instead would be the lotus flower. Most of the previously proposed ideas about the ancestral flowers had us assume implicitly that it was spiral. And so this was a complete flip in uh, thinking about the ancestral flower. I should, I should specify that we're not sure about this, Uh, But all of the data is actually currently pointing towards this direction. So how certain are you that this is what the ancestral flower might have looked like? And what would you need in terms of data or experiments to be more sure of this finding? So in this paper, we actually quantify the uncertainty by using a number of methods. And what we found is that the uncertainty is uh, in particular linked to the choice of the model. So what I would do to go on and improve the inference in the future would be to conduct new research about the true model of evolution in in flowering plants. If this is what the ancestral flower did look like, what would that tell us about the evolution of of modern plants? What we found is that if this is correct, uh, it also came with a, a, a large number of parts. The parts that we would today refer as sepals and petals in the ancestral flower there would be probably more than two worlds, possibly four worlds, 
uh, of a total of 12 parts. This is much more than um, most of the living flowers. And so what we found is that to explain the diversity of living flowers that we have nowadays, uh, the very initial phases of floral evolution would have gone through um, uh, different processes of reduction, of loss of the worlds, or possibly merging of some worlds together uh, to uh, produce uh, simpler flowers initially that later developed into a large diversity of uh, possibly more complex flowers in some cases and, and even simpler flowers in other cases. And what do you think could be some of the possible reasons for that change or that shift? So the way I think of it is we, we don't know what happened to produce the first flower, but it's very likely that it was just the end point of a long evolutionary history that by chance uh, and probably with a number of uh, events linked to this uh, produced this particular structure that we reconstruct today. Uh, by all means, with all the time that happened uh, uh, after this ancestor, it had a, it had a time to, to modify itself and it looks as if uh, for flowers, uh, it would be better to uh, have fewer parts that are uh, better organized, uh, either in sets of five or sets of three, uh, than the, the, the original model, which, which I, I just see as, uh, as the imperfect flower. That was Hervé Soke from the Paris Sud University talking to reporter Anand Jagatia. To read that floral study, head to nature.com forward slash ncoms, where there's also a picture of what the flower might have looked like, and we'll be tweeting that as well, so follow us on at Nature Podcast. Time now for our weekly news chat, and Davide Castelvecchi has come down to the studio. Hi, Davide. Hello, Adam. Now, scientists have spotted the first moon going round a planet not in our solar system, unless they haven't. What is going on with this maybe moon? It is a very intriguing hint at this point. Um, there have been hints of so-called exomoons before over the years, and it has become one of the biggest, most sought-after prizes in the field of exoplanets. But in all the previous previous cases, the hints subsequently disappeared on closer inspection. So will this one survive? We shall see. In October, they will do a follow-up observation with the Hubble telescope, and maybe sometime next year we'll know. So at this point, what has actually been observed? It's one of the most popular techniques for finding exoplanets in general, which is you stare at a star for a long time and you wait for any dips in its brightness. And then if you see periodic dips, then you can deduce that there is a planet orbiting the star and getting in directly in the line of sight between the star and us. Uh, if you just have a planet, then... Uh, and you look at the, the, the graph of the luminosity of the star, you see that it's, it's constant, 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 and then it dips. It has a nice uh, symmetric bowl shape, like a cereal bowl, and then it comes back to normal. In this case, what they saw was that it was a, a cereal bowl that would spill the milk because it was all lopsided. And so uh, the idea could be that there's a moon that peaks out of the planet during this this uh, occultation. You've mentioned that we're not sure about this. We're not sure that this is definitely a moon and that's something that the researchers hope to be sure of in the next few months. Why is there such a big fuss about this right now if it's still so up in there? The, the researchers were not planning to make this announcement, 
because they were afraid of being billed as, as sensationalists and so on. But then, to find uh, confirmation of this hint, they booked observation time on the Hubble Space Telescope. And the, the Hubble uh, records are public. So another, another astronomer saw uh, that they had a slot in October and tweeted about it excitedly saying, oh, if David Kipping is booking time on the Hubble, there's, there must be, there's, there's only one possible explanation. He's seen a hint of, a, of an exomoon. So to get ahead of the news, the researchers uh, at the last minute added a section to a paper which was originally going to be just about negative results. Let's move on to our second story, which is from last week, and it's all about the statistical measure, the p-value. Before we get on to what's new about the p-value, what is a p-value? So the p-value is uh, one of the most popular measures of the statistical relevance of a result, and it, it says, well, what if you wanted to test that there is no effect, for example, that chocolate does not raise your intelligence? Um, then uh, you want to make sure that you rule out that so-called null hypothesis with enough certainty. And the, um, in, in some fields of science, the, the, the standards for ruling out a null hypothesis are extremely strict. And in other fields, uh, there's been uh, a long uh, controversy over whether they are strong enough. So what would be the problem if a p-value isn't strong enough? What would that actually risk in practical terms? Well, it raises issues of reproducibility because a lot of times results that have a quote-unquote low enough p-value oftentimes turn out to be false positives. And that could be because of multiple reasons, either because... The statistical sample was not large enough, the experiment was not designed well enough, or maybe the experiment was just one of many questions that the researchers addressed by a statistical fluke. They just decided to publish the one that had a low p-value. So what's the proposed solution to this? Uh, these potential errors, I guess. Yeah, so the authors of this study, they are they're not claiming to have a one-size-fits-all solution or to have a magic wand that will will fix the reproducibility crisis. But they're saying in, in a lot of fields where the standards are low right now, it would help to lower the, the p-value threshold by an order of magnitude. So instead of 0.05, let's just start from 0.005. Wouldn't this mean that some results which are true, some uh, findings that are true, could get missed? Yes, it could. And um, this is also something they discuss and they say, well, this is not the only thing. You know, you have to have kind of a holistic approach to the problem. And one, one other important issue is to raise, to, to, to do better experiments and to raise the size of your statistical sample. Now, they're certainly not the only people to complain about the p-value. There have been other ideas to try and correct it in one way or another, right? Yes, and uh, it's an ongoing problem. I mean, the gold standard is to do to reproduce findings. There is the also the, the other important issue that has been raised is with negative results that are not published. Because if you do 10 experiments and you just publish the one that finds the result you wanted, say, for example, about a, a drug being effective for one particular symptom, then 
you are pre- presenting a skewed picture. Do you think measures like this will actually get taken up? I, I feel like every few months there's a new proposal to try and correct these practices. But I don't hear that much about them actually getting implemented. I think that the 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 very fact that these issues are being discussed a lot and they're getting coverage, um, including in nature, um, suggests that people are paying more attention and that maybe things will change. Well, we'll see if p-values do indeed start to get a little lower at some point soon. Davide, thanks for joining us. As ever, for all the latest science news, make sure to head to nature.com forward slash news. That's all for this week. But before you go, there's just time to mention that Nature, in partnership with Eppendorf, has announced its winner of the Eppendorf Award for Young European Investigators. The award recognises outstanding work in biomedical science, and you can listen to an interview with this year's winner, Tom Barden, over at go.nature.com forward slash EYIA 2017. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Adam Levy. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.